Coming up on Tech Nation, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist Matt Richtel turns the tables on all of us. He is interviewing me, and we don't have any reason to take this unprecedented step other than we thought it was an interesting idea. We'll talk about the notes I've made from guests on Tech Nation and anything else I've encountered. And Matt has questions of his own, which he always does. He's a prolific author in both nonfiction and fiction, and his expansive beat specializes in technology, business, and science. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Stanford professor Bob Sutton about his book, Good Boss, Bad Boss, How to Be the Best and Learn from the Worst. Reading his book, I realized that 90% of us have bosses. In fact, there are somewhere between 20 and 30 million bosses in the U.S. alone. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people who wield authority over other people. And if you think about how the hierarchy in an organization works, it just happens naturally. And that's some people say, I want a world without bosses. Well, it turns out if you put two, especially three people together or chimps or cats, you get a pecking order. It's just one of those things that everybody wants to dream there's going to be in a bossless world. But the fact is, it's, I guess it's the way that we're wired, is that um, whether it's formal or informal, a pecking order emerges, and most of us are bosses or have to deal with them. That's sort of our lot in life is to deal with authority relationships. Well, we even think that, the, you know, the president of the company, so, you know, they're in charge of everything. They have to report to a board of directors. They have to report to the board of directors, yeah. And so everybody's got a boss. And, yeah, and the managing boards is its own special sort of weird little thing. Yeah. But uh, in, speaking of CEOs, and I don't know exactly where we're going, but one of the things that's actually sort of cool, there's some research coming out showing that, uh that they matter some, but what really matters is sort of like the bosses they breed and create, especially their top management team. So even even in that case, you know. Your spawn is what's important. Your spawn. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we know we just had a major shakeup at a big technology firm, Hewlett Packard. Right. A president and CEO who had done remarkable things in the years he was there, did a lot for this company. Mark Hurd, out on his keister. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. And in, in fact, so the story about Mark Hurd, who is uh, CEO of Hewlett-Packard, which is the largest seller of um, personal computers in the world. And, and Mark, in, under his leadership, did a fantastic job of cutting costs, slashing costs through layoffs and other cost reductions. So they're incredibly profitable, leading PC maker, leading printer maker. So the numbers look great. But somewhere along the line, there was a little scandal. And we can't tell exactly what happened because uh, some money was paid where there was a woman who accused him of sexual harassment and got a bunch of money from him. And somewhere along the line, he did something that he even admitted was unethical with his expense account to cover dinners and stuff with her. So he got fired somewhere in the process. And any of us who've been involved in the backstage of a firing, not necessarily a CEO, there's the stuff that people can say and there's stuff they can't say. So, so nobody, there's more. It's got to be more. It's got to be more. Nobody knows what happened. But the interesting thing about Mark Hurd from the perspective of power for any boss, ranging from a first-line supervisor to a CEO, is there something 
uh, called power poisoning. You really got to be careful of. We've got a couple hundred academic studies that show that when you give people positions of power, three things happen to them. They become more focused on their own needs. Um, they become less focused on the needs of others, and they act like the rules don't apply to them. And I suspect that uh, it all happened. It all, and, and the more <laughs> famous, and the, so Mark heard much ballyhooed, very powerful. The inside reports I have from HP, quite a severe um, jerk. In fact, they the, the argument was he kept hiring and breeding mini marks. They called them, who were so so. There might have been some of that going on, but why he got fired, we can't really know because there's so many non-disclosures and so much money obviously passed hands. The thing that happened to Mark Hurd is something that every supervisor at every level has to be careful of, this really consistent thing of power poisoning, that it goes to your head, you don't realize it's happening to you, it's amazing how clueless and oblivious it makes you, and then on sort of the other side of this, and this is, if there's a main point, the main point of good boss, bad boss is, this is happening to you while the best bosses are actually ways who find, people who found ways to overcome that so they can be in tune with the people they lead, which is not an easy thing to do. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Stanford professor Bob Sutton about his book, Good Boss, Bad Boss. He continues to be a Stanford professor, and the name of his latest book, well, we can't actually tell you the name of his latest book on air, but the subtitle is How to Deal with People Who Treat You Like Dirt. I'm Moira Khan. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Matt Richtel is not being interviewed. No, he interviews me. You know him from his tech noir thrillers as fiction writer A.B. Jewell in The Man Who Wouldn't Die, or from his science writing in An Elegant Defense. It started out a harebrained scheme, but it's a reality today, and Matt takes over just for today as host of Tech Nation. And now, here we go. I can start out. Well, welcome. You're, you're listening to Tech Nation, and I am not technically your host. Actually, technically, you are the host, <laughs> but today you're the host. Technically, I am the host. <laughs> welcome to Tech Nation. My name is Matt Richtel. I have an extraordinary honor of flipping the microphone for a very special episode in which Rather than being interviewed, I will interview Moira Gunn. You have heard her ask so many questions. Today, Moira, I am putting you on the spot. Are you ready? Of course not. <laughs> this is so strange. I gotta tell you, this is new. New. Why? Why is it strange? Tell me what it feels like to get ready to answer questions rather than ask them. Well. Frankly, on my way over here, I was like, so I usually get into this mode of like, okay, I got the questions, I got the guests, I did my thing, okay, now, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm all ready to, I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on here? I'm not selling anything, I don't have a book to sell, I don't have a 
company that you know it's like oh no it's just Matt, it's just Matt. Moira, which is a good way of introducing why we're doing this and how we came up with the idea. First of all, let me just briefly introduce myself. My name's Matt Richtel. I've been privileged to be on the show a number of times. I'm a New York Times reporter. I've written a bunch of stuff. You don't really want to hear much about me. You want to hear about Moira. Moira, why did we decide collectively one day to do this differently and let you answer questions. Well, here's the thing is that the last time you were on, and you've been on a number of times, the last time you were on, you said, let me ask you a couple of questions. And I'm like, well, okay, you can ask me a couple of questions. And um, then afterwards you said, well, you know, we could do this. We could actually, you know, flip the script here. We could do this or flip the microphone, as you say. Um, and, uh, you know, like think, you know, take the next six months and, some things that might be of interest to you, just kind of, you know, write them down and, and we'll try it. And I said, well, that, that sounds great. No, because I found out I'm not being paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome. Welcome to public radio. <laughs> it pays very poorly, Moira. <laughs> okay. I'm doubling your salary. Let's see how good you are at math. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm a writer. I think double zero. <laughs> double zero. Well, can, can I begin with one basic sure. question? I know that your listeners get this in bits and pieces over time, but could you consolidate your biography for us? Can you get us from NASA where you were a bit of a ceiling breaker, uh, excuse me, a glass ceiling breaker, yeah. unless you had other accidents. Safety glass, we don't safety know glass us. only it's NASA. <laughs> can, can you get us from there to here just to, just to consolidate that for the people who listen to you regularly. Well, you know, it's a little hard to get to NASA. So I had to get that PhD in mechanical engineering and, you know, degrees in computer science. And, you know, I worked my way through a lot of that as a programmer, different applications programmer, systems programmer, and did all that. Got the degree, got to NASA, uh, where I did large-scale applications and all kinds of fun things. It's fun at NASA, you know. There's no non-fun, you know. Well, put that in a little bit of English for those of us who are not so good at math or computing. Large-scale applications, the things you did would have applied to what? Well, there's global weather modeling. Ah. Yeah, when you think about it, you know, it's kind of interesting. You've got, uh, uh, we have have a system of weather balloons. People would let literally let go, and they would float up high and into the atmosphere, and we'd know where they were going, and we'd collect all kinds of information that they have, like the pressure and the temperature and the altitude. And uh, at that point, they were just bringing in the system of global positioning satellites, the GPS, you know. But we're putting all that together to try to get a picture of what the weather was in the world, how it was moving around and climate. You know, what's the difference between weather and climate? What fascinated? Two weeks. <laughs> it's true. It's two weeks. It goes beyond that. It's climate. Weather and climate is different. Oh, that's the differences. So that's a lot of data, and you have to lay it out and work on it and see if you could predict it. That was one of the applications uh, that my team was working on. A lot of what we're going to talk about today is what has fascinated you over the years. And to give us kind of take your temperature on what fascinates you broadly, what did you find fascinating about the path you were you were engaged in then? And, and if you'd like, even about the weather at the time. The weather, yeah. You just didn't ask anybody. The computer could be down, you know. But uh, I would say that it, you know, the indicators of what I'm interested in and how I operate were already there 
I mean, you switch from math to computer science to mechanical engineering. You get to NASA, you're working on weather and climate and and satellite, you know, the shuttle reentering the atmosphere and how the tiles come together on the bottom to make a, a completely seamless carbon-carbon uh, entry vehicle. And uh, all of these things, it's like there was nothing I wasn't interested in. And... Uh, and after NASA, you were asking me about continuing on, I I became a consultant. And I worked on all kinds of things, nutrition research. I became a robotics engineer. I did all kinds of things. And I love being a consultant because I could have multiple projects going. By the time I got to do this, it's like, oh, I get to talk about anything. And I get to do tech and science and people and all that stuff. So it's perfect for me. I'd like to make an observation for to see to see if this is true and to offer for the listeners. You are in many ways you're getting a kind of an inside look at the mind of a radio host. No, really, <laughs> right? Like uh, I'm reminded of Doonesbury. He did inside Reagan's brain, inside Gunn's brain. But the reason I I make this observation is. Uh, you you must be insanely curious to do this job for free week in and week out. Can you talk about both the pros of that level of curiosity and the liabilities if people want to understand what it's like to be in a position like yours? Well, anytime you're doing anything out of passion, it doesn't matter whether you get paid for it or not. What I'm really clear about is that all the people that work on the show, they all get paid. Everybody gets paid. If there's any leftover money, it would go to me, but I'm always giving it to somebody else. But I'm also a professor. That pays the bills, you know, so so that's that's good. That's the good part of this. But why would you do anything that takes a lot of effort. You constantly have to be imaginative about it. You constantly have to be working it. You know, we're in the middle of COVID-19. A whole lot of things had to change. And so we just, you know, it's like when you're motivated, you can do a lot of things. Now, one of the things I think that that's important is this nature of creativity. And uh, when you trust yourself to when you're in a, a fix, you kind of, for me, you just, you just kind of sit there for a while and maybe you talk to somebody or, and all of a sudden a solution will come forward. Now we know from neuroscience is your brain's working on it. And so you can trust your brain to come up with new ideas. Forgive me for interrupting you on your own show. That was totally <laughs> uncool. But you no, you're the host. <laughs> you graciously, you graciously. So we have a picture of of uh, of a of a kind of engineering like brain combined with uh, a really innate sense of curiosity. And and I asked you in advance, or we agreed, that you would write down some of the commentary that has really struck you. And I was hoping to elicit some of what interested you about it. Can I read you a few of the quotes? We'll start with one that really struck you um, uh, among the people you interviewed. And I, can we talk about it sure. a little bit? Are you, are you game? Sure. Okay. There are no points. There's no reward. You cannot get nothing to win. There are no wrong answers. <laughs> you may phone a friend. But I do want to say... 
I do want to say, I don't allow people to usually to phone friends, but if you make that rule, I'm, I'm already up for it, but I won't call you. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> well, how can you attack, I, you, how can you attack the host? Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> the way it goes. But um, I do want to caution you to keep an eye on the time because about 10 minutes in, you're going to have to do a reintroduction. How long have you been talking? I, I have not paid attention, Moira. Let's go to the producer. The on t- unpaid intern is. <laughs> yeah, what is he telling us? Oh, we don't have any of those. No, there's no unpaid intern. Yeah, we'll go a little more. Do a few more minutes and then we'll. All right, let's do a few more minutes. And the magic of production, if it's really bad, we'll pick it up and move it. Okay. <laughs> That'll be good. Now, what did you ask me? You asked me something. I Well, I wanted to ask you about the first quote you gave me. It's from. Oh, yes. Yes. It's from Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square. And I'll begin by reading just the first sentence. And then maybe as this goes on, I'll read you the rest of it. But he said, he said, do you most people really don't feel comfortable unless there is a known path? What struck you about this um, as so salient? Well, we've been talking about NASA, where you only do things that have never been done before. And you get into that habit and you like it. You know, it doesn't bother you that you don't know how to do something or you don't know where to go. And I think that's frequently why people freeze when something new happens. Our whole society right now is was really thrown for a loop just a few months ago when Everybody found out about this COVID-19. You'd look out on the street. You didn't know who had it. You didn't know if you could get it. You didn't know if you made a mistake and touched something. You And you, we were all truly frightened. We had no information. And, um, and it was like, what are we going to do? And, and, and people were demanding answers for things we had no answer to. Now, we clearly don't have all the answers, but we have enough answers to know you know, that we're not going to get in trouble in certain ways um, uh, if we just mind our P's and Q's. Um, But there's still a lot more to know. But even when we're going in a new direction, there's a whole lot of times people want to know that it's a proven path. They they say things like, um, uh, it's, it's not done that way. I'm like, well, of course, most of the things I've done have never been done that way because you know, it's new. I made it up, you know, um, and uh, when people say, let's get best practices, how do you get best practices if nobody's done it before? So, you know. So, Moira, let me I'm going to pause you on your own show. OK. And I'm going to take a minute to remind people that uh, my name is Matt Richtel and I am guest hosting Tech Nation today. And uh, we have a guest who is quite illustrious. You know her every week as Moira Gunn. Um, And today we got to turn the microphone and ask her some questions. And the reason I pause there, Moira, is because I wanted to ask you, in light of what you have just said about how fearful the unknown makes us, what has made Silicon Valley tick from your standpoint? It is essentially where you have set and nested your show, and the unknown is its stock and trade. Tell us about some of what you've observed here in terms of how people overcome the fear of the unknown. Well, I think for starters, we have to understand that uh, you're a success here if you do something new. You have to do something new. 
There's no, they don't hand, they don't even hand out ribbons for me too, you know? So you, you have to do things that are new and you have to then be excited about it. What gets you over the hump on this is learning to do things that are new and get the result from it, get a good result from it. And it becomes very exciting. It becomes, uh, it becomes a way of life. It's like it's a lot more exciting than doing the same thing again and again. So what happened in Silicon Valley, in a sense, was that there are a whole bunch of people here who are like that. Not just the ones we hear about uh, or that we read about that we see on TV or that we any of those things, but everybody who's a part of the team. Everybody who's a part of it actually, you know, all has that sensation that they're moving everything forward and uh, or at least things are different because of them. And when you can make a change in life, um, then it's it it feeds you in, in a very interesting way. You know, in hospice, I hate to bring this in, but in hospice care, people always ask three questions who are who know they're in the final stages they they are they are absolutely ruthless they say who did i love no question about it they don't say well i should love that person or should have loved who do i love who loved me and the third question is always what difference did it make that i was alive what difference did i make and i think that's part of it people feel very alive that they've they've made a difference in the world and uh, i think people are very very intoxicated intoxicated if you will by that that's beautifully put i want to ask you a question you talked about the people who are in silicon valley and i i wonder if over the years in your observation you have found that the people who are here are made by the culture or the culture that is here draws those people and then they reinforce the culture. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, listen, I got to kill a lot of time here, sister. <laughs> now, I'm just realizing how tough your job is. Would you yeah. elaborate, Moira? <laughs> yeah. At this point, you say, that's really great. But if I ask 40 second questions and you have three second answers, I'm going to have to ask a lot of questions. So keep going. And I cut that part out. Um, uh, it both are true. Um, the people who love building all this stuff, they come here and they're like, I'm really going to like this. I'm really going to really like this. But they don't like it when they realized, hey, buddy, you just built the first 80 percent you got to get the last 20% to work. Then they bring in all these people that can make, uh, that are like, yeah, I'll, I'll get it to work. I don't think up new things. I'll get it to work. Or they think they don't. Um, and then they realize the part that they have in it and how the insights they get from doing that last 20%, the, the, uh, that, you know, actually make the thing work actually leads to the next creative leap. So I think it's, it goes in both directions, but at the end of the day, they need each other. You can't just have one or the other. Either nothing new is going to get thought of or nothing's ever going to work. It, in, in, this is not on your list of questions to ask you. So you can, you can, be as evasive as you like. Okay. But over the years, are there one or two people who are so quintessentially of this place that they have really stuck with you? You know, it's funny that uh, you would say one or two people. 
there's there's a reason people are in pairs in a sense. Uh, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, um, uh, the dreamer, you know, and the doer, yep. the, 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 the putting it together. Uh, Larry and Sergey, who are very, we just had their first interview, radio interview ever on, and you could see that they have they give different things here. Uh, Jerry Yang and David Philo, very infrequently is just one person out there. And so I think the Silicon Valley is frequently, uh, you know, the the Hewlett and Packard, you know, it's very infrequently just one person um, that when there's there, there are buddies of any variety, the buddies can work very, very well together. When one's low, the other one can pick them up, you know, and you've got more minds thinking of new things. Is that, is that something that, um, that can be copied outside of Silicon Valley or is copied or should be more copied? Well, you know, this is really an interesting question that uh, people have tried to replicate. They do it very analytically. They say, okay, well, you have to have, you know, uh, uh, people with certain degrees and certain universities and certain legal practice. They always throw, throw on the lawyers, and the bankers money, you know, and all, all of that can be true. But, you know, we just had Matt Ridley on who was talking about innovation and how people think. And I think the biggest thing is the human element of how many people you have doing how many things. Mm. And then that can take off. That will draw all of those elements that we see. I mean, I always think, of the, and this may sound like a strange example, I was giving a speech at the University of Southeastern or Southwestern Oklahoma. There's actually four of them out there. They divided the state. They got a lot of money in there. And and this was in the middle, had been developed in the middle of a, of a big Indian reservation um, or near one. And most of the students were there. And when they first started, they were having these huge dropout problems where people wouldn't show up to class or the final or the whatever, and they couldn't figure it out until they realized that in the um, in the Native American tradition, the American Indian tradition, that, you know, their concept of time was completely different than the European concept of time. Mm. And once they realized that, that, you know, if your family wants you to do this or it's the third moon or the time to do harvest or whatever it is, that's what you do. Everything else has to fit around it. So they ended up adjusting how schedules work, how students went to school and everything worked. Now, what was, oh, oh, I know what you were asking me. I forgot the question. But the truth is. <laughs> Moira, is, you're, you're doing great. Thanks. Thanks. I'm nervous, but okay. You're um, really, you're killing it. But here's the here's the deal is that is that uh, that's the same thing with clusters. I could put I could put 50 programmers and have them in and and go to uh, another corner of the world that had nothing in it. And somehow everything didn't work. There wasn't a culture. There wasn't a resource. There wasn't a this. And so people have to be able to kind of all mix together. And there has to be a certain number of them. And it's at that point. You can you can actually have enough, you know, Moira, I'd like to I, I want to ask you to predict the future in a moment. Okay. I just want to I want to um... <laughs> it's going to be very far so that this show will be well over by the time <laughs> oh, you're going to have to play this soon. But I just want to reinforce what you just said. I happen to be writing a book on creativity and some of the 
some of the. Uh, <laughs> I wish you could see Moira's face. Another book. Listen, Whoa. I only, I only, I only <laughs> could take up one hour hosting the show. I had to do something else with the rest of my time. <laughs> so, but, but uh, you began by talking about COVID, and many of us are at home, and in fact, many offices. Um, even here in Silicon Valley, have just described indefinite closures, people working from wherever is comfortable. How do you see the indefinite nature of far-flung workforces impacting creativity and collaboration? You've been listening to Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist Matt Richtel, host for today of Tech Nation. I'll answer his question after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist Matt Richtel and I will continue our discussion about life today, and I answer questions about whatever he asks me. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Matt Richtel turns the tables and interviews me. In truth, we're talking about topics which affect us all. You began by talking about COVID, and many of us are at home. How do you see the indefinite nature of far-flung workforces impacting creativity and collaboration? This may sound strange. This has pushed us into when is it good? What is it good for? And somebody said, oh, hopefully, I was on a meeting the other day, hopefully we can meet in person next time. And everybody goes, why? <laughs> why would you do that out of my day? You would have normally had to get in your car, drive over here. Yeah. We would be here. Then you'd go back in the middle of the day. And so the ability to to use your time in ways that you choose, which are sort of an intellectual process, that's going up. At the same time, we're still human. Um, who was it that was here? Uh, 
uh, Dr. Peng was here, and he was talking about how the really productive people have of, of an intellectual sort of, you know, the writers and the thinkers and the uh, anybody who's working on really intense stuff. They got four hours a day. Of if they, they make sure they get the four hours in, I always say at the time of day, that's good for you. Yep. And there, this, this longer, this, this day is not their friend. They think they can be that productive all day long and they can't. Well, Moira, the, if the New York times is listening, I usually put in a 15 hour day that is extremely productive every minute of it. I know. In fact, you're also writing while we're speaking. I can see that. I, I am. I'm filing on deadline. Um, no, but but so are you suggesting in that that we will discover that there is something decidedly counterproductive about this moment that for that we've come to embrace? Well, I'm suggesting that there will be a limit to its productiveness, but that we've finally gotten to the point where we can see its pro- how productive it can be. And remember, we, they used to have to go to work because that's the only place you could do work. Telephones, landlines for the business, that's where it was. And then when things started to go away, well, it was traditional, traditional. So, so just to press you on the original question, do you think, I think I hear you saying that you believe creativity will remain in bat because we will find a, a better balance. Um, not, but you're not saying you think we'll remain far flung in ways that would diminish creativity. I just want to have you, I, I want to press you on, on what happens to the collaborative spirit that you've described as essential to this place. Well, I, th- I think that, that the cre- creativity and clusters of creative effort can now happen and not be geographically co-located. So does that spell the end of a place or does that spell the, the ability to mimic what Silicon Valley has elsewhere in ways that have thus far eluded? We, we actually don't know the answer to that. I do know that... Um, as of just before COVID happened, we had such a migration to the city in the last 50 years, going from like 40% of people living in cities now up to 85%. This is where you wanted to be and you didn't need to own a car and you need that. And now it's going to be like, ooh, maybe I don't want to live right in the middle of a really packed New York City. <laughs> maybe yeah. I want to have a, a smaller city where you have a bunch of stuff. This is actually going to play out in a whole new way. That I think we're going to see. Is that a positive or a negative or neither here nor there in that respect? It's That's another yes answer. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> I'll be happy to talk about I think it's both. I think it's both. Yeah. Is, is, is this where I reintroduce us? No, you only had to do it once because then we go over the middle. Give me everybody the secrets. Okay. And that, so we cut into that and then I'll do that. I'll do it when we're finally in there. And then, then you got a free run to as long as we talk. As long as we talk. Well, Moira, can I go to some of the other quotes that have fascinated you over time? Sure. But as the host, you actually only have to ask permission if you're asking something totally embarrassing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, hey, listen, actually, that's a perfect segue. What is the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you as the host of your show while you were um, uh, broadcasting or recording? That was, this is actually kind of funny. It was a live show from Las Vegas. 
it was a it was a big tech show. So it's not like, you know, and the cab drivers used to always say, yeah, these guys. Hold on, Moira. I'm nervous because a Las Vegas story could go a lot of directions. It could. This is not going to go there. Uh, but what happened is that we were there to do a live show and they were really sure we're going to this got to be exactly on time. And this is how long it takes. This is how, much, how long our outro takes. And we had an audience and all of this. And uh, and so uh, we get I bring it right in. So there's a minute left and. And uh, the music comes up for the outro, and we knew a guy. One of the one of the people on the crew was a, a very well known announcer that had been an announcer for a station, a local station. And and uh, instead of saying this show is brought to you by Tech Nation Media or whatever we said, he said this show is brought to you by. <laughs> we look out. There's no way. It's like it's like turns out he was an announcer at a classical music <laughs> station. <laughs> You know, Debussy, Third Suite. It sounds, it sounds very serene. <laughs> that was so. We had to redo the outro, and the and the people in the audience are just like, "What is this?" Was live so radio. What are you going to do? Live. Um, all right, that is not at all a good segue into where I, as host of this show, will be taking us next, which is a bit back to the beginning when you mentioned, or the early part of the show, when you mentioned hospice. Yes. Um, and another quote that, that you um, remarked on as, as, uh, as having interested you, which I also find fascinating, is this. Adult children tend to care primarily about safety. Seniors themselves tend to care primarily about independence and quality of life. And this was from uh, a professor of medicine at UCSF, Dr. Louise Aronson. This seems all the more pertinent now. Tell us, why does this quote so uh, spark your interest? Well, I, I, I wrote it down, actually, before this whole pandemic came around, uh, but listening to Everything that's going on, saying, you know, the elderly and the uh, people with underlying conditions. And now we get the conversations about how we're going to reopen the economy and people are going to go out and we're going to reopen society. And we're thinking, but these elderly people, you know, you got to have to stay at home. Now, of course, you know. The, the front end of the baby boomers, you know, got the the worst deal. You know, one day they're the baby boomers and the next day they're the elderly. You know, so they're like, they're already pissed off and they have to stay home. We got nothing for you, as they say on, as Jeff, what's his name says on Survivor. Got nothing for you. Just stay home. It's like, what? What do you mean stay home? Yeah. Oh, no, you're elderly. No, no, no. <laughs> it's like, no, what do they care about? They care about independence and they care about quality of life. We want to see our friends. We want to see, you know, I know they're out there shouting right now. We want to have a quality of life. We want what they used to go out and have dinner and go on trips and do all this stuff. But, but Moira, you, you wrote this down before COVID. Yeah. So presumably you're thinking of more systemic, something more systemic than what we're experiencing now. What what are you observing in um, in the differences of perspective among generations that um, that would lead you to say people are out there screaming right now? <laughs> because we're the baby boomers. <laughs> 
for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, we did everything different. We're going to continue to do everything different. Ah. And and we're, we're also of the generation that gets the benefit from all this biotech. We will be living so long, everybody will be sick of us. Oh, but we're supposed to stay home for a long time. It's like, no. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. And but you know, many most of the baby boomers, they now have adult children. And here we were just just um, you know, raising these children to be safe, our responsibility. We don't have to worry anymore. They're doing great. They're taking now they're worrying about their children. And what happens is that they've become suddenly very conservative. And I'm not just talking about my children. I'm talking about everybody's children. Mom, dad, you should be doing like what? Are you talking to us? You know what are you talking about? So that at this level of of these baby boomers, you know, and they're looking at their children, their children are, you know, looking at them saying you have to be very, you know, this is about safety. We're like, no, nah, we're back to having fun. Nah, you know. And what you're accusing us of doing, uh, maybe too strong of a word, is becoming overprotective. Well, Dr. Louise Aronson is accusing you that, the professor of medicine, and um, she's director of medical humanities, and she wrote a book called Elderhood. <laughs> she kind of, she's into this. <laughs> but, but it resonated with you. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I was free to go about my business. You know, they graduated from college and I said, goodbye and good luck, you know, and <laughs> no idea. Do you, do you think, do you think COVID has, has um, reinforced the sense of frustration or um, I know you're going to give me a yes to both, or has it um, reminded you of the vulnerability that comes with age? Can you talk about that tension? Well, I think that tension does exist. I think you're you're absolutely right. Uh, certainly, uh, the baby boomers continue to be, unless this changes, the baby boomers continue to be the biggest and earliest adopters of new consumer technology. But the fact that we're all staying home, people have a different take on it depending on uh, once you're out of the hysterical, oh, my God, we're all going to die, um, terror of the early days um, is that if you many of the baby boomers are home alone, literally alone. And that's a time of contemplation. Uh, and you're like, am I ever going to be with people again? Am I going to be with my family again, isolated? And, you know, I better outlive this <laughs> because I could die alone. I'm not staying home for 10 years. You know. <laughs> Can I ask you, in all the contemplation you've done, uh -huh. um, for the longtime listeners of your show, has has it led you to think any differently about the show itself, um, given what's happened over the last few months? Well, the show has always regenerated itself. You know, if you had told me before we started all the biotech stuff, we'd be doing biotech, I'd say, you crazy, you know. Um the and it's not just ooh they are new topics, but it's what's relevant to people. Uh, the uh, I was I was in tech before it was fashionable. You know, when you don't see the impact of things, one then when that impact arrives, you don't see the you certainly didn't see the next impact. So the the topics of what we're talking about, the relationship of what it means to be a human, how we all relate to each other, information, all the information that's out there, and how it impacts us. I mean, I think these are these are 
amazing times. And so what the show is about is it completely challenges itself. Now, what's happened now because of uh, technologically about, you know, telling all the elderly who get younger and younger. At one point it was 50. I was like, 50 is elderly. That's very interesting. 50 is elderly. <laughs> this sounds very personal to you, Moira. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. 50 is elderly. And um, uh, the uh, it's that, well, what can we ask people to do and how do we do it? And how do we usually, you know, continue to get the audio quality, continue to get the good guests, continue to have the conversation. Um, and where are people? Where are people? Where are they? And how can we talk mm. to them? It was great when Matt was on. He was in, he literally had built himself a studio in a closet in his home in England. Wow. In the north of England, uh, you know, with comforters. You know, he was smart enough not to have the flowered comforters. They were all, he said, but they're comforters. And it was great audio. And so how we're going to produce the show, uh, what's going to fall off. He doesn't have to fly to San Francisco. I'd interviewed him at least three times before. He had always had to get in a plane and get here. I can tell you the book industry does not want to send you on any more book tours. No, they don't. But um, uh, at so, you know, so when you come on for a Because Because why would you fly someplace to meet? 30 people when you could speak to someone over, but that was true in, in the years past. Just one more thing. I want to, I want to turn to another topic, but I want to ask you quickly, do the stakes feel any different? Will it change the nature of the questions you ask given what we've experienced? I have tried to not include the experience we're having right now in a number of interviews. And I just can't, do it. <laughs> it's that serious. This is an event that you can't, you just cannot ignore the impact individually and collectively. And there's no insight that I have or that anybody has that sees the whole thing. We need each other to see what it means. And even though we may be talking with great relief about something else, yet it creeps in. What does it mean now? I mean, fortunately, you're in the middle of writing your book on creativity. What if you had just published it and then this happened? I mean, it, it, it's impossible to, to, to ignore that through line. Nobody can read anything, um, I don't think, in the next few years that's contemporary without acknowledging the moment, the, the remarkable moment in time we live in. And don't you dare start trying to ask me a question. Young lady, but I'm just going to make a little. <laughs> you can tell I was getting the the, uh, the but 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 frankly, you know, the, the person I'm dying to talk to, and uh, we pretty much got the whole booking in place, is that is a gal who's written a book called Uncharted: Navigating the Future. Mm. Poor dear, <laughs> poor dear, just came out. It's coming out in September. Just can't change it. You know, the books are on its way. You know, but uh, she's ready. She's ready. With it, with its new subtitle, <laughs> hope it worked out for you. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but I want to ask you a question. We're, we've been talking about pathogen yeah. of the biological variety. I want to ask you of the, I'm going to make up a word, informational variety. You are in the broadcast business, the media business. And you, one of the quotes you wrote down comes from uh, uh, Brian Stelter, who in this case was not with you in a conversation, but with David Remnick. Brian Stelter, a former colleague of mine, now at CNN, and he said, misinformation is a pathogen unto itself. Reflect on that from your perspective. 
Well, I think one of the things that we've learned in this whole pandemic is how every how this virus travels. It travels and you can't see it and it's unseen. And so when you're looking at misinformation, um, intentional or otherwise, you can see how it can go through one to another. You can't see it. You can't say, oh, you watch this or you are this or this is who you talk to. You don't know how it goes through. And it's a pathogen in that bad information is bad. I mean, you can't make a decent decision. You can't, we, we create it for our children. We have a safe environment with trusting information. Well, it's, de- it's, it's so bad. It's deadly. Yeah, it's, it's totally, it's completely deadly. And um, when we put that together with the current sort of caustic uh, back and forth that has come out of the political conversations, uh, it's it's terrible. I said to somebody the other day, I said, you want to you want to wonder why people don't step up to I want to be in politics. Do you really want us? The first thing you got to do is have people say terrible things about you. No healthy person does, you know, and, and incorrect things about you. You know, the the most authentic voice comes when someone accuses you of doing something you haven't done, you know, and it's like. You've got to be kidding. Anna DeVere Smith wrote a whole book about that. And and so when I look at this and I think of misinformation and disinformation, um, it's like it's that that will eat away at our ability to connect as humans. And that is um, that's a big distressor for me. I'm really, really thinking about that. So, so as someone as someone in you who who whose lifeblood is information, what are the guideposts you would offer to your listeners about how you decide what is credible? You obviously don't repeat what you don't find credible. What are your guideposts so that we might draw from those guideposts ourselves? Well, number one, trust is earned. (laughs) I don't care who it is, who it is, even with me, no matter what, trust is earned. So you have to watch that. It goes away in a minute. Then it can, maybe it could be re-earned, but trust is earned. Number two, understand your brain. There, when you get information into your brain, uh, there's no little tag that says, oh, that's not true. Oh, that is true. And then you put how bad human memory is. So be extremely careful about what you consume, whether it's watching, reading, listening, extremely careful. There is no such thing as casual listening or watching. Everything has to be critically viewed. And then I think no matter what, if something just, you have that feeling like, you know, it doesn't seem right. Write it down, do something and check it out later. That will guide you to what you can listen here again or what the frame should be. So you've got to be your own own person that listens to uh, to the context, the uh, environment in which all this information is coming to you. You've got to be the guardian of it. Moira, I might remark two things in this regard. At one of my early newspapers, an editor used to say, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> and, but, but I'm also, there, there is a flip side to the misinformation spread by this mass media empire. Um, empire sounds monolithic. I don't mean to like it, just the availability thereof, which is there's a lot of ways to check. And I was just noticing the other day, there was a, uh, there's a drug that the 
president's been taking and it's been it's been discussed whether what the research says i was able to go back and look at the primary source research articles um because i was getting confused myself about the different reports that were out there so do, do you go back and look at primary source materials i presume with your uh, scholarship that is essential to what you do. Uh, before I was a scholar, I was a check it out kid, and um, I think that's it. That the, you know, you're you wouldn't dream of giving misinformation to your children. You want to give them trust. You want to give them a sense that they are solid in the world. Why would you not treat yourself the same way? Why wouldn't you give that that same thing? And it's like. And, and take a very loving look at anybody else. It's like, well, you're saying that and you may be misguided or you may be well-intentioned or you may, uh, you may be trying to trick me or whatever it is. Just take a very loving view. But this is me. And that's how I do it. Moira, do you find in, in all the entrepreneurs and innovators you've innovated, do you find there to be a tension between the belief some have in their ideas and a subtle kind of misinformation that comes from evangelism. Does that bleed out of Silicon Valley at any point? Well, it's interesting. I think you're talking about evangelism in in terms of evangelism, like technology and not God. Yes. <laughs> not religion. <laughs> and, um... Yes. Just the, the uh, small e. Yeah, and I find that the evangelists um, are not usually the the innovators or the creators. They're picking mm. up something that's really cool mm. and trying to get everybody to do it and believe in it, and it's so cool. Um, but I think anybody in any place can get stuck on what they think is the right thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the biggest issue is, and this is the this is where education comes in, and parents come in, and society comes in, understanding the consequences, doing your best to understand the consequences of what you're doing. You can try, you have to try. Now you can't, you actually, you can never tell how your technology is going to be used, no matter how well intentioned. So, so that's the that's the thing now you got to but but you draw the distinction you draw is between the person who's the passionate innovator and then a person who comes along later and is trying to make money from that thing is that the core distinction or just for some reason it seems crazy just wants everybody to use it and it's like really what's in it for you i just think it's wonderful and they're there you've seen them before you've seen them and it's just like i don't know why you're doing it but this is, you know, somebody. Now you have a job to do now because, you know, you have just, that's the time you say we've run out of time. And have we already run out of time? Because yeah. I had one more I wanted to ask. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, 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 you wrote down a quote I find so interesting. I'm going to read you this quote. We give what we feel is essential for us. And that is Bruce Weidick, a USF professor of economics and the author of Shrewd Samaritan. Faith economics and the road to loving our global neighbor. And the reason I find it interesting is it sounds like what he's saying is you don't give what is uh, what we tell you you have to give. You give what is in you that feels right. Is that what you hear there? What do you hear? Well, what I hear is that he was talking about one laptop 
per child. And if you remember that, this was a huge initiative that every kid in the world had to have a laptop or they literally, you know, would never never be a part of tomorrow's society. It would be contributing to the digital divide. It would be terrible. And of course, everybody in Silicon Valley, I mean, if you've never been to a Silicon Valley meeting, you just come in and the first thing you do is open your laptop. Now, you go to a meeting, you know, anyplace else and you open your laptop, it's like, excuse me, you're supposed to be at the meeting. I mean, literally, people can't imagine living without their laptop. Um, and so this was, and their kids all have laptops, you know, and all, everybody's got a laptop and multiple laptops. And uh, uh, and it's like, you can't put that into another culture. You can't put that into a different socioeconomic, you know, area. You And like, what about the what about wireless? What about the, you know, what about how do you get everything in? And but that's because these people get, gave what they thought was essential to the next part. Now, um, uh, it's like sending milk to Asian countries where many of the children don't have the ensign to process it. Mm. We get we tend to give what we think is essential. Ah, so through our own selfish lens. What we perceive to be necessary. Well, our, oh, that's the only lens we have. That's the only lens we have. Through our own lens. You know, and so it's like he's asking us, look at them, try to figure out what they have, and don't just give money. Be shrewd about this. You know, take a look, and and through your engagement, it will occur to you what would be helpful. Does the Does the connected nature of our world make that easier over time? Well, it makes it easier for everybody who's connected. <laughs> so back to one laptop a person. <laughs> yeah. All right. Listen, we, we've only scratched the surface uh, with an amazing guest, the uh, the most heard voice ever on Tech Nation. Yeah. Well, that's actually not true. But as host, the only other voice. <laughs> the most heard, the only host. Um. It's been a privilege to have you on today, Moira. Is there anything you would like to add? I'd just like to add, I can't believe I let you do this, but it's sure been a lot of fun, and I want to thank you. <laughs> well, I want to thank you. It's been a privilege to sit in your chair and be on your side of the mic. Or actually sit in your chair. <laughs> See, I'm terrible with math. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks, Moira. You've been listening to Matt Richtel, the first ever sit-in host of Tech Nation. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for a New York Times series on distracted driving. You might know him from his tech-noir thrillers, such as The Man Who Wouldn't Die, and from his nonfiction, such as An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. For Tech Nation... I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. 
Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.